welcome to the Female Founder Squad podcast. And today I am thrilled to welcome Danae Shell, co-founder and CEO of Vala. Danae, great to have you here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. How are you? I am good. It's been a long and exciting week. And yeah, it's Friday night as we're recording. And yeah, I'm looking forward to um, chilling out after like, yeah, a lot of lot of things all happening at once, which is super exciting. I know. Thank you for joining me on a Friday night. As I said, I'm sure you have better things to do. So I really appreciate it. I really don't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... What I want to start with is, you know, we we sort of connected through our sort of mutual colleagues at Codebase Edinburgh. You've been part of the Edinburgh ecosystem for, what, 15 years now? At least, yeah. Yeah, 15, yeah. 16 years. Yeah, and that accent definitely isn't Scottish. So let's go a little bit into a bit of your background. Tell us a little bit about how you got into tech, how you came to Scotland, and uh, what you've been doing that 15 years in the tech ecosystem, and how all that's kind of shaped where you are now. Yeah, absolutely. How I got into tech, I... I learned to code. I taught myself to code because my parents gave me an Apple IIe when I was probably like 11, 12, maybe a little <laughs> bit older. But yeah, the first thing I built in app was an Apple Basic and I built my own journal. And so I remember, <laughs> I remember distinctly being really angry at this uh, bully at school who had called me a name or something. And I remember like writing, go to 50. I hate her. She's so mean to me. So yeah, so that was my first coding experience. Wow. And then I I kind of just stayed, you know, it was such early days of internet. Like we had AOL when when I was young and that was like my first, my AOL chat rooms and stuff like that. And then just got really, really interested in web development. And at the time I was doing a, when I went to college, I did a political science degree and ended up getting really interested in e-government and IP and just basically how tech was shaping a bunch of other stuff and ended up building a lot of websites then. And that was really back in the day. And I remember I was teaching people how to build websites through this job I had at the at the college or university. And and like I just remember blowing everyone's minds when CSS came out and I showed them how you could just apply a style sheet to a website and change everything about it. And I was so excited and they were so excited. <laughs> yeah, things have come on a bit since then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so that was that was kind of how I got into tech. And then when I left my political science degree, um, I'd, I'd done a lot of computer science at university as well. And I, I came, I really came to Scotland because the university I was at had a had a great study abroad program, and Ooh, I found which hmm? was that. Oh, that it was called Furman University. It's a really small liberal arts college in South Carolina. It's kind of nice. it's kind of where if you if your grades weren't good enough to get into like Duke, you ended up at Furman. Duke is one of like Southern Ivies or something like that in America. Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, it was it was a really nice. It's a very classic American university. Lots yeah. of fountains, rose oh. garden, like the whole shebang. <laughs> it was it was a lovely lovely university to go to but yeah I came over to do an internship when I was in Scotland and Napier at the time had this thing called the Teledemocracy Centre and it was so old you know Teledemocracy is not really a term we use anymore 
but I, I learned, or I, I worked with them for a semester and basically just after that said, you know, could I come back? Like, could I have a job? And they were like, yeah, come on over. So I, I did, I basically signed up, did my master's at Napier in computer science and worked yeah. at the Teledemocracy Center part-time while I was doing that and built um, a community council blogging platform. This was kind of before WordPress was about, and I got really kind of interested in e-government, e-petitioning um, and things like that. So yeah, that's, that's what brought me over to Scotland. So yeah, lots of, lots of, even then lots of like social kind of stuff I was interested in. And then yeah. I, I got poached over to the dark side after that and worked in financial <laughs> services for about six or seven <laughs> years. It <Yeah. laughs> was building financial planning tools to help people understand what their pensions were worth. And okay. I would build the tools. And it was really interesting, actually. I remember I remember distinctly, and I would build tools. Some of them were for consumers. So say like a big insurer might contract our company to, they had like a special um, stochastic modeling engine that would forecast yeah. the stuff. And then we would build the tools on top. And I remember one company, one big insurer was and pension provider was user testing the, the product that I had built. And um, they were testing it with with the with consumers. And it told you, you, you typed in your salary, you typed in, and your age and stuff like that. And it told you how much you were likely to have in your pension when you retired. And they actually had to halt the user testing at one point, I think, because the um, people were freaking out so much at how low the numbers were. That was really fascinating for me because it was yet another thing about, you know, like intelligent, like not intelligence, information, financial information for people. Yeah. And one of the other things I did while I was there was built tools for IFAs so that they could report to consumers, their clients to say, okay, here's the portfolio that we've selected. And here's the projection for that portfolio, which is part of um, what you have to do in financial services. And so, yeah, that, that was really fascinating in terms of how do you educate, how do you communicate these really complicated ideas through technology to mm -hmm. consumers and that helps them make responsible or, or just informed decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And was it then after that that you moved into the sort of startup world? Yeah, well, that was actually a startup. Um, it was a really interesting company. So when I joined, there were six people in that company. And it was kind of a spun out startup from another startup. Okay. <laughs> the, the, the kind of the, the sister company only maybe had about 20 people in it. And they were yeah. building they were all actuaries. They were building the data platform. And then they'd spun this other company out of it to try and build the front-end tools that, that use the data. And so my first job there was a Flash developer, and then we kind of moved into other... Um, I ended up building Ruby on Rails after that. So it was it was really interesting because we started as like this tiny little startup, and then eventually we merged back into the sister startup. So then there was maybe like 30 people. And then they that was when FinTech really started taking off. Yeah. And so then they they grew and grew and grew... And the financial crisis hit in the middle of all of this, which for this company was, it made a lot of sense for them because they were projecting risk. And in a lot of cases, they had been working with these companies and saying, you really should be holding more assets to protect against a black swan event. And um, they weren't. And so then suddenly they were in really high demand and the company grew even more. And when I left, I think we were probably at about... I can't remember how many people. It was definitely over 50, maybe up to 100. And oh. Moody's uh, Moody's Analytics had bought the company and kind of brought them into that wider thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was 
really interesting. My first education on exits um, yeah. <laughs> and how all that works and everything. That was that was a fascinating ride, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And then after that, you went into took a side step into marketing. Is that right? Well, it was so I kind of and the tail end. No, I think it was through pretty much that whole job. I started I started this weblog <laughs> um, called Knickers and it was it was in the really early days of blogging, like back when they were called pro blogs, when they made money for them, when you made money as a mar- as a blogger. It was a really different kind of web at that time. And I was really interested in the idea of making money from publishing yeah. online. And uh, AdSense had just come out. Google had just started paying people for showing ads on their site. And there was a few ad networks that were starting to go around in the kind of beauty space. And and I was really interested in lingerie because I'd gotten bra sized and they told me I was a G cup and Americans don't go past D. And so I was like, am I? And they were like, am I a mutant? Like what's happening here? And and I went online and I was really looking for women talking to women about lingerie, which obviously exists now, but at the time it didn't, it was just porn. And so, <laughs> and so I started Knickers. Really, it was talking about bra sizing. It, it was it was ostensibly about luxury laundry and bra sizing. It was really about confidence and yes. and yeah. like like you know encountering so many women who didn't even feel confident enough to to get bra size so that they could be comfortable, like literally just comfortable. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I, I learned about digital marketing through that. I was actually I learned a lot about SEO, a lot about newsletter building and things like that. And I was actually number one for the word knickers on Google for five solid really? years. Total science digital marketing. I've been trying to do some, you know, obviously for female founder squad. And you know, I with my personal social media accounts, I've never really had to experience digital marketing myself. But trying to do some, you know, trying to grow an Instagram following on, you know, for FFS. I mean, it's, I didn't realize I had not appreciated just how much of a science is behind it. It's crazy. It's really it's been really, a learning curve. It's, it's amazing, actually, because it's grown into a science since I started, kind of started. It was, it was really the Wild West when, when I started in that space. And, and it's been fascinating to watch how it becomes much, much more analytical. There's a lot more... There's a lot more playbooks now. The yeah. tech is so completely different now. It's fascinating. Yeah, and it seems like you know every time people think they've got they've got it right, the the you know Instagram etc. just change the algorithms altogether, and it just sort of you know then it's back to square one. And it seems to be quite a lot of you know the science slash luck of just getting something right. You know, some sort mm. of formula in that sense. You know, so yeah, it's it's I'm still learning. It's I feel like I've got a, a lot to learn. And that's it's, it's a very fast moving thing. So yeah, it's it's a constant. So what happened? What happened with Knickers then, and how did that get you into your role as CMO? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. That's <laughs> so great, with, right? so Knickers, I ran it um, for about five years. I had I brought on a business partner. She was amazing to kind of we wrote it together and kind of ran it together. And we really came to a crossroads as the web became more and more professionalized as it turned into the web that we all know today, where of course everyone makes money and advertorials exist now. And, you know, that, that line between content and um, editorial and advertising is very blurred. And, and we built it into a really great, you know, it was a massive influencer. We had about 5,000 subscribers who spent 
they spent half a million pounds on laundry every year. Like they were the top 1% of the 1% in terms of luxury laundry. You can really spend a lot of money on laundry, by the way. Oh yeah. 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 But we, but I was, I was so burnt out. Like I was so burnt out because I was running this as a business on the side and we made revenue and everything, but I wasn't comfortable. I don't think either of us were really comfortable with that, that blurring of that line. And Mm. And there was really a crossroads where it was like, are you going to try and make money out of this for real, real, or yeah. are you, or are you yeah. not? And I just didn't, I think I'm a bit old school with that. There should be a bright line between um, advertising and um, editorial. And so it just wasn't, it, it just turned into not the white, right web for me, basically. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, we decided to shut down Knickers and, and it was one of those classic examples of you close a door so that something else can open and within I think months of shutting it down and finally kind of getting all that energy back and all that time back I moved into a role at free agent which was at the time maybe 20 30 people uh, their marketing team had two or three people in it and I'd, a- I'd applied for a job as like a general kind of marketing or acquisition manager and when they interviewed me they encountered this strange like person who was like a luxury lingerie blogger slash website developer. <laughs> slash, <laughs> like, and, and so what I ended up doing for them was, I think my first title was online content and data analysis manager. So I, I basically came in, did their content marketing, did their content strategy, their SEO, and also set up a lot of their marketing analytics, their sales force, and um, because of all that kind of technical side. And it, it's a very classic startup. You just do whatever it is that um, yeah. that you're good at. And, and then, yeah, totally. Yeah. So that was really where I became like a proper marketer. I had transitioned into marketing technically in the last job via a webmaster role. So I, I used yeah. to be the developer and then I was developer for the website. And then suddenly I was doing more Salesforce and things like that. But I really became a marketer when I joined free agent and started yeah. working the communications director there, Roseanne, she is, she came from Cancer Research UK, just a, an incredible marketer. And I just really learned so much from her as to how actually to be a marketer, because I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they ended up, you know, they, they, I mean, they're still going, obviously, but they, they've got a bit of a success story because they, they were acquired by sort of RBS NatWest, weren't they, for a significant sum of money. And the guys are still still there and still doing great. So, I mean, it's yeah. that's one of Scotland's, apart from Skyscanners, probably one of our big success stories. So that probably would be really good grounding for you in that role. And then, you know, then you moved on to something else after that, didn't you? Yeah, I moved on to a company called CareSourcer. So I, I kind of grew up as a as a as a startup person inside Free Agent. The, the, the guys who run it, they were incredibly transparent about all of the decisions that they needed to make and all of the conversations that they were having with the board and every month we got we got to see the same slide deck that the board did and they really took yeah. us through all of that so by the time i got to so five and a half years later and by the time i got to care sourcer i was ready to be a startup executive yeah. because i kind of risen to the point in free agent where i couldn't go any further and so then i was ready to take take everything that i'd learned and really kind of apply it somewhere else and so I worked with them for about 18 months to, you know, set up their, not just the marketing team as the CMO, but also there was a lot of just, 
how do we work together as an executive team? How do we like, cause there, I had a great example to work from, as you say, uh, free agent is a real success story and they're still doing really well. And I left after they had IPO'd, but bef- just before they were acquired. So I, I'd really gone on most of the journey with them. So yeah, yeah managed managed to absorb a lot of lessons there. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I guess that would have been really good insight, you know, both all of the startup experience into culture and building teams and, you know, all of that that you need to for when you, you get to the position where you want to start your own. So talk us through how you went from CareSourcer and then because you co-founded Vala UK with Dr. Kate Ho, right? So from was it care sorcer from care sorcer from then you moved into Vala or was there is there something in between that? Yeah, no, it was um straight from care sorcer. Well, straight from care sorcer to deciding to found Vala. So Kate and I had worked together at Free Agent, and she was their first product manager at Free Agent oh, and before okay. that. Yeah, and so she helped to kind of she helped Rowan with setting up that product function in Free Agent as they grew. And um, before that, she had been heading up product at the Scottish government after running her own business. And so she came in, and she she completely shook Free Agent up. Like Kate Ho, if oh, I mean, she is a force of nature. She's amazing. Like it's just she comes in and she just looks at everything with this like incredible mind, and she starts going, "Why are we doing it like this?" And Love the it. questions that she asks just like brings so much insight to everything. And yeah, she is she is really unique and just incredible. Yeah. Every, everybody wants to start a business with Kate Ho. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just got really, really lucky. How did you guys, did you guys just hit it off immediately? And is this something you always kind of thought you would do together? Yeah, basically. We, I think we're really kindred spirits. We're, we're very similar and very different at the same time. And it's interesting because we worked together for 18 months at Free Agent. And now yeah. we're working together in a very different way and kind of learning the similarities and differences between those two. But I, I think what maybe brings us together is we're both, we're both senior women in the tech industry, which yeah. is the more senior you go, the more rare that is. Ooh. We're both, yeah, we're both immigrants. So she's from Hong Kong and I'm from America. And we both we, we both really don't want other people to have to deal with some of the crap that we've had to deal with. And yeah. Yeah. we we both really want to help other people and a lot of and we both really want to use our powers for good when it comes to working in tech. And so we 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 have very different ways of looking at um, certain stuff, but that alignment there around mission is I think what brought us together really closely. We complement each other's skill sets really well. I mean, she's much more careful. I'm much more risky. She is product. I'm marketing. She's backend. I'm front-end tech. So we kind of, between our overlaps, we covered a lot of bases. So it yeah. just seemed to kind of make sense. It sounds like that's a great partnership. And I think, you know, having a co-founder that not only complements, but also challenges and one that you admire and aspire to as well. I think yeah. if you both have that equal respect for each other, it must really be a good grounding for any business, right? Totally. Yeah. We, we, yeah, it's, I still feel lucky that I get to work with her and we, we work with a coach to make sure that like she's, she's been there before. She's done this before. She knows what's hard and what's, what's going to be difficult about it. And I've seen it. I've seen a lot of it before. And so we know where we know that our relationship has, 
has to be the first thing that we focus on because yeah. everything kind of comes along along from that. So, mm-hmm. you know, even when we decided to do it, we started working with a coach together and we have about a quarterly check-in um, with that coach to make sure that we're staying aligned. We're kind of working on anything that could be a problem in the future and stuff like that. Yeah. Cause Great. it's, yeah, so it's, it's, like, it, it's like protecting, you're protecting your relationship just to make it sound, to make sure it's sound and a bit like marriage counseling in a sense. Yeah, it really is. And I yeah. I often think, like I used to describe when I was at Care Sourcer, I used to say it was like being married to four people at the same time and you're all trying to raise one child together. <laughs> and I can see how that would have been like that for the founders of Free Agent as well. It's um, yeah. it's a it's a really fascinating relationship you go into when you co-found or when you're in the executive team of of a fast moving company like that and mm-hmm. and I think we're both emotionally aware enough to know that that relationship really matters and that has that takes work too basically that's good that's really great so then you guys were moving into sort of August 2019 where did Bala UK come from where why did you decide to get into legal tech so first of all let's describe Bala do you want to describe it? I mean, I as we, we talked about this previously a couple of weeks ago, and I had a 23-year law career before I got into tech. So I was super excited when I'm like looking into Vala because it's such a great tool. So it brings data insights into the legal market, yeah. right? Do you want That's to a very good that? summary? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you want to pick that up and go into a little bit of detail about that. And how did you guys you know what, if you guys have been into sort of various, you know, free agent was sort of accounts, care source is obviously, you know, health, health and mental well-being, is it? It was all care for older people. So the care right. industry. Yeah. Yeah. So then where did the legal tech side come in? Did you just see a gap in the market? Like, How did you guys decide to go down there? What, what was the decision making process around that? Yeah, the the first time we looked at legal tech was about a year beforehand. We Brexit, oh no, it was a couple of years beforehand because Brexit had happened and we were seeing all of that pain and uncertainty that was happening around immigration, especially for European citizens who at the time were kind of rushing to try and get the permanent residency thing before the government came out and said, oh, you didn't even need to do that. So it was all that confusion. And we looked into immigration to begin with as a, as a legal tech kind of proposition. And because both of us had seen it, you know, when you apply for permanent residency and things like that, there are all these forums where people are exchanging. There's one forum where literally all people do is update um, when they applied, when they heard, when they got confirmation for the application, how long it took them to get their first letter, when their interview is, and any results or feedback. And it's just, it's it's structured data getting stuck into yeah. like this like 1990s web form. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And so we were looking at things like that and going, wow, there, there could be a tool here and explored that market for a while. And where we kind of ended up, there was a couple of different reasons why that, that startup didn't really work out. But one of them was that we realized that gov.uk would probably be our biggest competitor. And there was not a lot of value that we would be able to add that they weren't already kind of doing at the time in terms of the tools that they were building. Mm-hmm. And so that one didn't quite work out, but that got us really interested in legal. I mean, the other thing to think about is, you know, we we have watched over the past four or five years, you know, just like society collapse. And, and, you know, coming from our mindsets of how do we protect other people? How do we protect ourselves? 
the courts and the law are one of the last places where vulnerable, underrepresented people actually have a voice and have rights. And the courts have been, in a lot of cases, like the last, you know, bastion, the last place where people get the protection when other things um, go against them. And so that was the other thing we we really wanted to see, okay, how can people use the rights that they have? Because if they don't, they might go away even more. And so that was that was kind of wider context. And we got interested in where where Vala kind of came from was um, the fact that we were both senior women in tech and you you see a lot of crap and you don't just experience it yourself. But as you get more senior, other people come to you with their problems and and. Well, what I found and what Kate found as well is you you get other people coming to you with something and you just be like, I don't know what to do. And yeah. I remember, you know, in one particular case, I mean, it was a pretty horrific situation. And I think back on it now and I'm actually I'm, I'm a bit ashamed because I, I sat on it. You know, I, I did everything I could to support the person and, mm-hmm. you know, went with their wishes. But I I really wish I'd known what I know now because I really could have yeah. given them so much more of, of an idea of what their options were and what their rights were and things like that. And yeah. and it, it took me like months to to even start figuring that out at the time. And yeah. that's really what, what, what we're trying to avoid is I just want people to know when terrible situations happen, that A, they have right to do something about it. And that B, they're confident they that they're able to talk to an advocate, talk to someone and get some kind of advice. And really basic stuff like, is this worth taking forward? You know, how long is it going to take? What could happen at the end? How much is it going to cost me? You know, we're not talking like, you know, high level legal insight here. It's and that's just the basics. It's such that that's such huge insight for people because there's so many red tape, there's so much expected or anticipated expense in taking anything legal forward that you just a lot of people just go you know what I can't I can't do this I can't afford it I won't be listened to so let's get into the detail of Valor then what exactly does it do what what is the mission with it what's the vision with it you guys have already spoke about you want to do good for other people this definitely um it does that so for the listeners you know where, where does that insight come from what's what's what is that insight yeah, absolutely. So the the big mission is to make legal decisions fairer, faster, and more accurate. And we're starting with employment law because that's what we understood. And there is definitely a need there. And we're starting first with the with the lawyers and with the advocates, because what we found was that if consumers didn't know what to do, that was one big problem. And that's something that we think we need to kind of move towards rather than tackle first, because a lot of people don't even know that they have a legal problem. And so it's really difficult to educate an entire market all the way through from you have a legal problem all the way through to here are your options and you can do something about it. And that usually takes a lot of money to Mm. do TV ads and all those other sorts of things, which as a small stage startup, we don't do. But what really shocked us was that the lawyers are not able to operate on data like they when I ask them you know how do you know how much this case might win the answer isn't oh well because you know of this piece of information or this research tool or anything like that they literally just have to say you know it's my experience and they're very experienced professionals but what they don't have is a whole of market view they they can't 
That's exactly it. I mean, when I when I was looking into the tool earlier, you know, after being in a legal career for 23 years, and it wasn't employment law, it was convincing, but there is no tech. There is no tech in in the legal system at all. I mean, it's a goldmine for tech because it's such an old school, untouched industry that relies solely on precedent, on books, on you know, there's there's just nothing there. So something like this is is a is a game changer. I think it really is. We hope what's so. Been what's been your feedback so far from from the the people that you've worked with on it? Yeah, I think a lot of lawyers are super excited that they can um, finally have the answers. Uh, one, yeah, one lawyer said, you know, you're helping me find that needle in the haystack. Another lawyer, I can't remember exactly how she put it, but she said, you're taking everything that's so complicated and you've literally just boiled it down to a simple answer. Like, I mean, yeah. when you look at the tools that they have to use now, what they're typically just kind of like search engines that show you all the cases, but then there's no meta analysis of those cases. There's no, okay, here's all the 250 cases that were all like the one that you're looking at. And here's all the important information pulled out on top of yeah. that. Yeah, That's really what they're missing. And that's what they get excited about. And, and that saves them time, which traditionally, you know, the, this legal industry, there isn't a lot of tech there. And I think that's because traditionally the way that the, the legal billing structure operates with the hourly billing model has disincentivized anyone from really trying to save time, trying to be more efficient. It's, you know, I, I spoke to some lawyers really early on when we were working on this pro- like project at the time and, and they had been working, these were corporate litigators and they had, they've been working for two years on one case and it settled the day before the judgment, which obviously is still pretty common and I said, you know, what what happens to all that research, all that insight, everything that you've done? Like, what happens to all that knowledge now? Like, do you put it somewhere? And one of them turned to the other and she said, you know, I probably should write a lessons learned document about that, but I won't be able to bill for it. So I'll have to do it in my own time. And that yeah. was when I had that real aha moment. Like, yeah. ah, yeah. I get now why there's no tech in this industry. Exactly. <laughs> but but that is changing. Mm-hmm. That is changing now that the hourly billing model is changing. Exactly, because they're so slowed under. You know, it's it's you know, if you give them something that allows them to be efficient, they will they will be able to take on more cases, which will eventually you know pay off in the end. So, yeah, it's great. It's really great. So you guys created this August two thousand nineteen. So let's move into yeah. Yeah, we we started and we really started doing all that market research in August. In August, we thought we were building a pretty different product. We we were still thinking that it was maybe a consumer tool. We hadn't yet learned that people didn't know that they needed um, that yeah. people didn't know that they had a legal problem. Yeah. Cool. So then, so then, take us into this year, and we sort of move into sort of lockdown. You guys are have, have built. You've built MVP. You've done. You've done your research. You kind of know where you're going with it you've got your direction not full, not launched but you have early adopters or what what's the position there at the start of this year yeah start of this year around so it was around february that we so we probably pivoted like three four times in between august and february 2019 to 2020 and we're just really exploring the market talking to anyone we could and it was it was this year really early that we hit on this idea of decision support tools for the lawyers, where we really started to understand that problem. And so we built a prototype 
which is literally, it's a Google spreadsheet with Google Data Studio on top. For, for anyone out there who is thinking about starting a company and thinking, I need to be a developer before I can start that company or I need to hire one. No, low, low code <laughs> and no code tools. Like we are developers. We, we could have yeah. built it ourselves, but it, you just move so much faster when you can use those those kinds of tools you don't have to build it and so I started taking that and before lockdown I was literally going into the law offices and taking that prototype and then after lockdown I shift to online and that was when those first lawyers started like I by this time I've been talking to lawyers for like eight months or something and and this was the first thing that I had brought to them where they kind of leaned forward and really started to engage with it and that was yeah. when I knew that we were on to something yeah. So yeah, that was that was February and then and then when lockdown happened, that was really when we shifted gears our our lead investor, so Techstart, um that was when they said, "Okay, let's let's put together this round and we're in for part of the round, so let's let's start working to, you know, find the rest of the investors so that you can put together this pre-seed round that you're doing." So yeah, pretty much very- all of lockdown I've been fundraising. <laughs> I know, right? So this is where it gets interesting for me. So, and I'm sure everybody else. So pre-launch, you have already got an investor lined up with Techstar, right? How did that even come about? Hmm. Yeah, I think, so there's a famous article online called Lines Not Dots about fundraising. And I really recommend anyone who's thinking about fundraising to read it. And what that basically talks about is you don't, want to kind of beaver away in the background and then pop up all of a sudden as a dot on a on a VC's kind of like chart and say I'm ready I'm ready for you to talk to me what you really want is to engage early engage even before you have something yep and then let them get to know you let them see your progress let that let them see that little line go up instead of just another dot every now and then and that's that's really Yeah. Because there's so many founders out there that really think they have to have the fully polished, not even, you know, the not past the MVP, the final product, the polished, the, the completely end product before they even either go to launch or either go to market or even just speak to investors. Because I think there's so much fear around, well, I have to be I have to show that I have customers, I have to show I have revenue, I have to show I'm I'm in profit. And you, that's basically just the wrong thing to do. So what you're saying is just as early as possible, speak to investors, start, start that journey really early. Yeah, that's that's what I learned. And I, right. I, was, I was doing the same thing that everybody else was doing. I was beavering away in the background, but it was actually tech start. But the one thing I did do was I tweeted and I tweeted that I was thinking about fundraising. And so then Callum from Techstart, he got in touch. He had seen me speak Turing Fest that year. It was great. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You were there too. That was so amazing. Yeah. And so, and, and he, he and I kind of knew each other through the kind of Edinburgh network. We hadn't met yet, but knew of each other. And so he got in touch and introduced himself and said, you know, would you just like to have an early stage chat? And and I was like, oh, is that is that okay? <laughs> you know, I didn't know yeah. that it, I didn't know to be aligned then. I just thought I was thinking in dots. Yeah. Um, but he he like Techstarter amazing and Callum was amazing because he really explained a lot of these really basic things. He explained how it was okay to talk to a VC really early on. That, you know, 
it's okay to just build a relationship over time and just see where it goes. It's not wasting anyone's time and all the things. It's, that kind I of like, um, it's just like a courting process, right? So, you know, the earlier you, the earlier you start that handholding, I guess, you know, the, the, the better, you know? So, okay. So that's cool. So you've got tech stars on board. I mean, that must've been an exciting getting that ready, getting that um, relationship started and getting them on board must have been really exciting for you guys at that point. It was super exciting. And it was, it's, right? it's, that, it's always that, it's always that validation, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And we still had a, we still had a time to go before we even got to the term sheet. I don't think we signed our term sheet until maybe June or something like that. And um, so there was still negotiations to happen and things like that, but there was still that, that kind of, if we could put this together, we're interested and this would be the size of our interest. That was enough to, you know, get me yeah. to dive in. As you say, that enough of that validation. Brilliant. And and really I relied on them a lot, especially in the first few months to help me understand what it was that I was supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. to fundraise. I yeah, it's so confusing. So so that's you, you guys have got pre-seed. So throughout lockdown from March or June onwards, you guys have then been looking, reaching out to other investors to to join Techstars on that? Tech start, yeah. It was start, yeah. So yeah, I think basically from April until now, I have been fundraising and with a little <laughs> bit of a long, a long, long process. It it hasn't I wouldn't describe it as painful. I would describe it as I think I think in some ways I've been really lucky. I think probably this might be one of the easiest times that you get to fundraise. A because COVID COVID has complicated fundraising because it means that you know a lot of investors were more risk adverse. Yeah. But it has yeah. also, especially for a founder in Scotland, it's made fundraising a lot easier because I have much easier access to VCs in London and VCs anywhere else in the world because nobody's expecting me to go and visit them in real life, which would have yeah. absolutely been the expectation beforehand. Yeah. 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 So I've managed to talk to probably about 50 VCs, 50 different investors, or angels, all kinds of people from my spare bedroom, <laughs> yeah. which, you know, that would have been a very expensive enterprise if I had even managed to get them all in, um, in a, yeah. you know, in the before times, basically. And, you know, let's, let's, you know, let's talk about the whole VC funding thing, because you guys, two female founders, you know, great idea. The difficult, we know the stats, so less than 3% of female-founded companies get VC investment. You guys are, I guess, the lucky, lucky ones that, you know, you, you said you had a relatively easy process. Do you think then that the COVID has actually been beneficial in that sense for you? Like, you know, is it, rather than this traditional networking, warm intro process that, you know, a lot of startups have to do. And for me, it's clear that this process doesn't work for female founders. So, you know, I always I sort of compare it to trying to fit a, a square peg in a round hole. You know, it's like, why are we trying to, female founders are trying to fit this process that's clearly built by men for men, you know, so we should be trying to find our own process, I think. But, you know, it's great that you guys have had such a successful and relatively easy journey in that sense. So do you think it would have been different had COVID not, not hit? It's, it's, I do think, I still found that almost... Thinking about it now, and um, just because we're now firming up the round, we'll we'll finish the second part of our. So we we split this first round into two, and we're just about to close on the right. second half. 
literally probably in the next few weeks. And just thinking about now, everyone who's who's coming on board, there was no one, no one came through a cold approach. Everyone came through a network or someone who had known us already. Or right. It was all through introductions and it was all through saying that there was one investor, there's one investor who came to us and we got all the way... Th- we got quite a bit of interest from pitch events as well. So there was two that we did that I think they were both fantastic. One was um, this thing called the debut sessions. So Ascension yeah. Syndicate, who are um, one of the co- also one of the investors in Vala, they they put together like an online pitch event, and they're just about to hold like a Christmas one which is for pre-seed companies in the UK who are looking really? to raise like, and I think they guarantee a £100,000 check for one of the people who are pitching, yeah. which is just really? fantastic. And then there was another one called The Seed Stage, which was an even bigger pitch event where I think 20, I think about 800 people applied and about 20 got on there. And I think there were about 400 different people tuning wow. into that one. And so I, we, I got quite a few, I got two really solid leads off of the seed stage and yeah. one or two really solid, well, I got an investment out of the um, debut session because Ascensions came on board. Good, good for you. Yeah. So, so that, that, those might not have existed without COVID. Sorry, I just yeah. interrupt. Um, yeah, they I don't think. Sure. That, well, debut sessions, I think both of the seed stage had existed and it was a physical event, but the debut sessions was created, I think, in June. So mm-hmm. I, I do think that there are that everyone's been shaken out of their complacency, the legal industry and the VC industry. And they're having to adapt and open different kinds of doors because yeah. of COVID and because That's of lockdown. Great. And I do think that, that is helping. You're right. You're right. And a lot of them are now doing office hours. You know, the, yeah. you see the. You know, a lot of them are doing, especially office hours for female founders, which is great because, you know, it's time the VCs sort of shaked up, shook up even their their processes and, and their networking systems. And, you know, now with being online, they're not geographically restricted in, in that sense, you know. So, no, it has been great. And hopefully that will continue even after you know, next April when apparently we're all going back to normal. But, you know, I think I think having those having these new networks is great, you know, and, and having mm. the ability to to just focus on female founders or female led companies or co-founded female co-founded companies. You know, I think it's really, really important just to address that inequities that have been haunting us for, you know, the more the stats come out, the, they're saying in the Q3 of this year, the stats have fallen back down to 2017 figures. You know, it's like we were already at 3%. I mean, 3%? And then they've fall, they fell, fallen back down to 2017 figures. Like, what? Yeah. So, so fingers crossed that sort of style of, of working for them will, will continue because we need it, right? Okay, yeah, we cool. absolutely do. So you guys have done awesome, which has been great. What has been, if any, like lessons learned, like anything big that sort of sticks out that you think, ah, gone back, should have done this, should have done this better, should have taken a different approach. Any of that? Or do you think it's just been... Oh, so much of that. <laughs> um, I think the first the first mistake I really made was approaching the investors I really wanted first, because what I've really learned is your first pitch is your worst pitch. And, and I, I, I had been advised not to do that. Like I, people had told me don't do it. 
Yeah. And, and I didn't listen because you, you kind of forget and you get really excited. So when we were kind of like, okay, we're going to fundraise, I immediately went to like my, the people that I really wanted and gave them the worst pitch. <laughs> and, and, so, and, and they were all like, you know, thank you very much, but it's not going to work. And, and in some cases, I actually managed to kind of get a do over later on and built a really interesting relationship yeah. with the VC but but you that's very rare you don't really get do-overs and so yeah. now when I'm talking to people I say you know like practice like I was terrible at pitching this time like August last year I was at Turing Fest and they have Turing founders and uh, Fred Destin was running a pitch clinic there and I, I literally had I didn't even have a pitch for Vala at the time and um, Kate was going go on go on and volunteer so that we can you know just you got to get used to this you got to try <laughs> and I was so terrible like it was I ran over time it was like standing up on a it was embarrassing but I, I like that's I've just been throwing myself into as many pitch opportunities as I could because um, like good for you for trying right you've got to put yourself out of that comfort zone and just go for it you know yeah you really do and and you just know like you just have to know that you're going to be terrible at it for a while like and, and just accept that and it's in some ways, it's kind of a numbers game. You really do have to have a certain number of tries at yeah. pitching before you, you start to understand the feedback. I think why Combinators Startup School is a really good place to practice pitching because you've got yeah. that weekly group thing where you all pitch to each other and you yeah. can really tell what people get interested in and what they don't. And that really does matter. So yeah, so that's what I really wish I, I did a lot of practicing, but I didn't hold back my, I didn't hold back my, my top investors and nearly got my fingers burnt with that. So that's one thing I would do differently. I think, mm -hmm. um, I think I would, I, I, I would probably try to spend a little bit more time on cold outreach than I did because what I found was the introductions really did matter the most and cultivating introductions is massive. There's a fantastic slide deck and talk out there if you search for building your investor pipeline that explains how to use um, introductions in a really systematic way to get to the VCs that you want. And yeah. I, I followed that playbook and that worked really well. But to the, I kind of wish that I had spent a bit more time just doing a bit of cold outreach as well. But it takes a lot of energy fundraising. Um, it's even even for me, who really loves chatting to people all the time, and you, you do find that you kind of have to preserve your energy or, you know, portion it yeah. out as you can. Yeah. Oh, there's so many okay, things. So but yeah, that's the big one. Perfect. And what about then, you know, like you said, so one of the top tips there that you had back um, when you were speaking to Callum is just to start, is, is just to start that relationship, that courting really early on. Any other top tips that you would suggest useful? Yeah. Totally. I, I think it's so important. I participated in EIE and Vala was a participant in that, which is a pitch kind of event here in Scotland. And they, they do training and then they usually in the before times would do this big pitch event in person. And this year they did it online. The training was fantastic. And one of the things that was really valuable in that is I, I think everyone should understand who's fundraising and how VCs make their money how those funds are structured, what that means for you as a business, and also the difference between angels and VCs in terms of their motivations about why they invest and all that kind of stuff. And it, it really makes a huge difference to 
who you go after, why you're going after them, the conversations that you have, what like VCs are only going to be interested if you're trying to build a billion pound company. Uh, angels, you know, they they can invest for all kinds of different reasons. It could be, you know, the purpose, it could be wanting to give back, it could be for tax benefits, but VCs are very they're very easy to understand. But I like if like Google, how do VCs make their money? Because yeah. Yeah. once you understand how that fund is structured, you get a much better idea. And like the thing that really horrified me when I first was learning about all of this was the idea that I could have entered into a relationship with a VC without realizing how old the fund was. And when yeah. the fund matures, you've got to sell. Like it doesn't matter whether you're ready to sell or anything else. Like that's like those LPs have to get their money back. And so you're on I mean, the clock. You're right. And and we were talking about the science of, you know, Instagram and social media and, and all that. But, you know, VC world and VC funding is a completely different world of knowledge that, that any startup really has to, you have to do your homework. You have to find out everything you can. And it's so complicated, some, some of it. I really found why Combinator Startup School has got some really good resource on all of that. That's a goldmine. Everything it's on there fantastic. is everything yeah. on there is free and it's an absolute goldmine and when I'm speaking to startups that's my first piece of resource I'm always telling everyone no matter what stage you're at go to Y Combinator it's so good but yeah there's just and there's so many good books out there as well like Brad Feld he's got a really really good book on VC investment venture that's deals awesome. yeah yeah venture yeah. deals and there's loads and loads of them out there but yeah that's definitely a top tip right yeah, I had um, one advisor said to me really early on, it's that he thought um, it was irresponsible to run a start to take venture capital money without reading venture deals. Yeah. And, and now that I've read it, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So, I mean, what's next for you guys? You guys are coming out of this pre-seed round, you know, hopefully we're coming out of lockdown, they're saying in April next year. What's what's next for you guys? What's What's the future look like? Yeah, so we are, so Kate has come on full time as of the beginning of November. So she was at Skyscanner and um, kind of working nights and weekends and all yeah. odd hours. And in the meantime, so now she's on full time. The two of us are like, what was amazing was I thought it might double our productivity, but it seems to have like quadrupled the output. It's amazing. And so we're really picking up pace now, which is super exciting because it really yeah. has been, you know, over a year now, which is weird when I think about it. So yeah, we're we're building that first product properly now for employment lawyers and moving yeah. from the prototype to the full the full product. That will be out at the end of January next year. Yeah. And then we're going to see, you know, really try and quantify, okay, what are the benefits? How how are people responding to this? You know, go through that iteration, start getting feedback from our first customers yeah. and um, trying to build up that first portfolio of say, you know, like 10, 20 customers who can work with us and are happy to give that feedback. And then we want to, we want to understand because we're not just, we're not just doing employment law, you know, people have a lot of uh, problems with um, a lot of different as aspects of their life. And typically, if if you're the kind, if you have one legal problem, you're more likely to have other kinds of legal problems as yeah. well. Yeah. And underrepresented people are even more likely to have more kinds of legal problems. And so we're really interested in housing, you know, tenancy disputes with landlords and tenants. Um, we're really interested in immigration still. We're interested in, um, we're interested in anything, personal injury, even anything where yeah. it's, 
it's not, you know, it's not the fancy stuff. It's not mergers and acquisitions. It's not corporate litigation. It's, it's the high volume, you know, like millions of people, small amounts, you know, like everyday stuff that we're really working towards. So, so the future for us is um, deliver something on employment law, start to understand how it's helping, start to think about can we build something to help in-house HR teams? Can we build something to help consumers using that same data at the core? And then as quickly as we can move into another area of law like housing, like something like personal injury, and see if we can apply the same framework to that to start. Because for us, it's we just want to move one question at a time, one decision at a time. And just try and bring data into each of these critical small decisions at a time. So we're, we're just seeking out those decisions where data would make it fairer, would reduce unconscious bias in that decision, you know, or make it faster so that, you know, if, if lawyers could answer 10 times more questions like this every day, then maybe they could make, you know, legal services cheaper because they're yeah. the you know, they numbers of their business would change and, and just more accurate. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And wow, it's 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 got so much opportunity to it. There's so many iterations to it. There's just I'm excited. I'm really excited to see where you guys go. I think you've got such a, a positive, exciting future for 220 coming up. Oh, it's yeah, I can't wait to see where we end up. It's I mean, startups are always a ride, and I definitely feel like we're we're really in that ride part of it now, and it's just really hotting up and yeah, I'm just, oh, oh, I, I love this. <laughs> Brilliant. Right, Denise, thank you so much for that. I've got a quick fire round I'm going to get to in a second. What I was thinking was those two, the two, the document and the, there was a talk and there was something else that you spoke about, the building the investor pipeline and then the previous document. We'll get a hold of that and we'll put that with the notes of this podcast onto the platform, onto the the Female Founder Female Founder Squad platform with this podcast. So if anyone's looking for that, they can get to that. You're also a member on the Female Founder Squad podcast. Uh, podcast I am. On the platform. So um, I'm sure if anyone has any questions, they could always maybe just hit you up on there. As long as they're not inundating you, of course, right? So let's get yeah, to the fire round. First one. Your favorite piece of software, except your own. Notion. Told me about recently, which is awesome and changed my world. <laughs> that one, I think it just hasn't changed my world yet. <laughs> Notion is good. Notion is good. Okay. An existing startup you wish you had founded. Oh, oh, Starling and Monzo. Like oh, when I was at Free Agent, yeah. I kept harassing the guys to start a bank. I just kept thinking, <laughs> we should make a bank. We should make a bank. And it became a joke. I harassed them about it so much. So yeah, those two, would, those would have been cool. Brilliant. Okay. And what's your go-to to stay in the loop? I've got a few. Lolita Taub does a great newsletter. Fem Street is a great Slack community. Yeah. I've got it like basically Substack. Like I just use yeah, a, I'll, yeah. I use newsletters basically to stay in the loop and Twitter. Um, That's good. Okay. Favorite Instagram, Twitter accounts. What about Bunny? Okay. Um, it's it's a dog who uses buttons to talk to their owner. Um, <laughs> I am obsessed. <laughs> I've actually ordered the buttons so that I can start start trying to train my cats. <laughs> So that is like my number one. 
Okay. And so fast forward into the future, you guys are super successful. You've then made an awesome, successful exit. What's the plan after that? Yeah. Mentor, maybe like a tiny micro fund. You, you know what my dream is right now? And this is probably really naive, but having kind of gone through some of the early stage fundraising stuff now, I just want to get so rich that I can just like give 10 grand to anyone who asks for it. Because <laughs> like, especially for like really, especially for female founded businesses or people with yeah. like backgrounds that aren't, you know, people who, you know, don't Under- have a friends and family. Yeah, yeah. No friends and family, like, if, if I tried to raise 10 grand off of my friends, like they're borrowing money from me. <laughs> that doesn't work. So I just want to write 10 grand, 20 grand checks, like all day, every day to anybody who basically can prove that they're not going to like, just go and, you know, like throw it away. Like yeah, that's yeah. my dream afterwards. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. So everyone just keep, keep a note of Danae's Twitter. <laughs> for however long that takes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Form an, or- an orderly queue. <laughs> this is the last one, but perhaps the most important to me anyway, to, to the FFS mission, I guess. What would you do? What's an alternative to the warm intro process that we were chatting about earlier that I think just doesn't work for female founders, but clearly worked for you in this sense and during these COVID times? You know, what could we do as the 97% of female-led startups who didn't get the VC funding, you know, what's an alternative? And that's that's a big question, isn't it? I should have prepped you on that because it's it's such a big question to ask, right? And if somebody had thought about it or if somebody had the answer to it, they would be very rich, I think. They would, yeah. Yeah, I, I think um, I, it's a fascinating, it's a very good question. I don't have, I think there's a couple of things that are really interesting that are happening right now. There is the person um, who did the, was one of the co-founders of the lip eye lip kind of meme that was going on. I can't remember their name. I think it's Geffen. Um, They have a micro fund. These, these rolling funds that are happening, these, the ones that people are raising on Twitter and um, just deploying really quickly. And they don't have the same constraints as a traditional VC fund that I was just talking about where you have to exit at a certain time because of the way that the fund's structured. I think that those kind of micro rolling funds, mm. the the founder of Gumroad just came out with one of these funds. And I, okay. I think it's fascinating because the capital is coming from non-traditional places. And yeah. I think where you can pull wealth from non-traditional places, yeah. um, I hate calling them non-traditional because it's more like non like white people places or non like institutional places or something like that. But yeah, where you can pull money from underrepresented people to then deploy back into that ecosystem. Yeah. That's, that's where I'm seeing a lot of really powerful stuff coming out of that. And like I said, you know, like it, like sometimes it is just 10 grand. I think Arlen Hamilton's um, VC fund backstage capital, she doesn't write massive checks or at least Mm. she didn't when she started, but she didn't need to because like, in a lot of cases, you don't need a ton of money just to get to that Sometimes next stage that you can raise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So that's that's what I see right now that I think is really interesting. But but fundamentally, to your point, I think I think we we might have talked about this when we chatted before. Like for me, it's build your own table. I've yeah. like a lot of what I do, and a lot of one of the reasons is why you know why I wanted to become a CEO and why I wanted to do any of this was because I got frustrated 
with the way that it was working. And so I just wanted to do it myself because I really believe that you could there's a woman that I work with her name is Alani and she says I really believe that we can build a better unicorn and I I totally believe in that as well and to me it's a mass power a mass influence a mass wealth and then deploy that back out to the people who don't don't have access to it so yeah that's that's how I'm thinking about it at the moment anyway write 10 grand checks I love it. I love it. Okay, awesome. You have been awesome. We will be watching your your you and Vala and Kate's future with like so much excitement because it just sounds great. We're really I'm really excited for you. But um, for now, thank you for joining us, and um, we'll see you on the Female Founder Squad platform. Wonderful. See you there. Thanks. <laughs>